right, we're going to get started with our second panel now. Uh, thanks for sticking around, and, and thanks for coming to Cato today to talk about countering violent extremism. Uh, my name is Adam Bates. I'm a policy analyst here at the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice. Uh, I do a lot of work on law enforcement surveillance, police militarization, uh, the war on terror, and civil liberties. Uh, hence my interest in CVE programs, which, uh, depending on how they're set up and how they operate, cut across um, basically all of those issue areas. Uh, so we heard some great insights on the first panel about, uh, especially from a, a, a clinical point of view of what CVE is or attempts to be. Uh, now I want to talk about the impacts that actual CVE programs have uh, in the communities where they've uh, been launched. Uh, how do they function? Uh, what are the issues around them? Are they actually beneficial? Are these a good thing for, for the Muslim community? Uh, or do they unfairly target the Muslim community? Uh, to help us understand more about CVE programs, I'm joined by two currently, hopefully three, uh, distinguished panelists. And a real quick note, um, Abed Ayub of ADC was supposed to speak on this panel, but uh, he became a father a few days ahead of schedule. So uh, we'd like to wish the Ayub family all the best. Uh, Sue Yudri graciously accepted to uh, agree to join us on extremely short notice, uh, so, and we're so lucky to have her here. She's the Executive Director of Defending Rights and Dissent here in D.C. Uh, she's also on the board of the National Coalition to Protect Student Privacy, the D.C. Chapter of the National Lawyers Guild, and the Advisory Board of the Charity and Security Network. She's also a co-founder of the Montgomery County Civil Rights Coalition. How do you find the time to do all of that? Uh, our second speaker will be Dr. Muktadar Khan. He's a professor in the Department of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Delaware. His areas of interest are the politics of the Middle East and South Asia, political Islam, Islamic political thought, and American foreign policy in the Muslim world. Professor Khan teaches courses on Arab and Middle Eastern politics, politics of development, globalization, and, and Islam and world affairs. Uh, our last speaker is uh, having some trouble getting over here. Uh, she's from Minneapolis, so this DC traffic thing may be difficult for her. Uh, our last speaker will be Ayan Dahir. Uh, Ayan is the program coordinator at Reviving the Islamic Sisterhood for Empowerment, or RISE, uh, and she's also the executive director of the Young Muslim Collective in Minneapolis. Uh, so after our speakers give their remarks, hopefully we'll have some time for Q&A. And with that, Sue Udry. And thanks uh, to Cato for having me here today. I think this is, it's really important to be talking about the Countering Violent Extremism Program. Um, I think it was uh, important and problematic during the Obama administration, but I think it's perhaps more so under the Trump administration. Um, so as FISA, um, described the CVE program um, as an off-ramp um, for, for people to, who might be on their way to becoming terrorists uh, to stop them from committing a crime, um, generally by providing counseling or social services. Um, as Adam mentioned, I'm an um, activist in Montgomery County, Maryland, with the Montgomery County Civil Rights Coalition. In Montgomery County, um, we have uh, really one of the earliest uh, countering violent extremism programs that we've been uh, advocating against. Um, but because it's, uh, you know, when you're working on the local level, you, you, you talk with the, with the people <laughs> who are doing these programs. Um, we have a pretty good relationship with our county police force, including our police chief, Manger. And the way that, um, the way that he describes the program 
is he wants to wrap his big loving arms around a troubled individual and guide them to the good, into the light, um, which is so beautiful. So, so why, why, why do I, as a middle-aged white non-Muslim woman, care so much about this program and want it out of my county and out of my country? Um, and it's, it's because it's a predictive policing program. And as with any predictive policing program, the trick is always to see into the future and decide what clues are going to tell you who's a future terrorist. Um, what makes CVE particularly odious to a civil libertarian is that it looks first at a person's political or religious beliefs or their ethnic identity or country of origin. Um, and that's problematic. <laughs> Those things are, are protected by the First Amendment. Um, and as, as the previous panel talked about, you know, there, there are no reliable indicators of who's going to become a terrorist. They are, just aren't. Um, so the theory behind countering violent extremism programs is that terrorists display certain indicators as they proceed down this theoretical path to radicalization. It always starts with a certain set of political or religious beliefs, and the community members, from imams to social workers to teachers to police to the general public, to the general general public can be trained to spot these indicators and refer that troubled individual to an intervention program. Um, our allies um, that we work really closely with, the Muslim Justice League in Boston, um, have a really good description of CVE that I like. CVE approaches and the concept of, quote, violent extremism as opposed to, quote, violence, blur the line between actions and beliefs and may deem people with, quote, radical political views who have neither committed nor made plans to commit violence as more likely to commit violence. CVE thus marginalizes views some governments find politically threatening, chilling their expression and restricting public debate. While promoted as a national security strategy, CVE operates as a social engineering campaign, as has encouraged the viewing of certain political dissent or orthodox Islamic practices as pre-criminal rather than non-criminal. So I think it's really important to, to, to wrap our heads around the idea that CVE is a national security and law enforcement campaign. It's actually not just one program. It's many different programs. Some are administered through the Department of Justice, and some are at the Department of Homeland Security. So in 2014, Boston, Los Angeles, and Minneapolis were selected to host pilot CVE programs um, and in 2015, the federal CVE initiatives were expanded to additional cities through what was called the Strong Cities Network, um, which included Minneapolis, Atlanta, Denver, and New York City. So although the programs differ from city to city, they're aimed at youth um, and generally include community, a community education component, community programs, and some sort of intervention program. They're primarily, if not exclusively, aimed at Muslims, and they usually bring together police, uh, religious, and community leaders in some sort of, often it's called a stakeholders council. Um, but it's very heavily reliant on police and, um, and, uh, and law enforcement in general. So um, one of the programs that I just wanted to 
um, make people aware of is uh, run by the FBI. They've got a bunch of, they've got their tentacles in this, in this program pretty deeply. Um, but one, one project that they have that I think really highlights the, the problematic nature of the CVE program in general is uh, a website that they created that's aimed at middle school and high schoolers. It's called Don't Be a Puppet. And it aims to um, steer high school and middle schoolers away from being puppets um, and to help them recognize if any of their um, fellow students are puppets. Um, and what they mean by puppets is people who, who might become violent extremists. And the, the frame that the FBI uses is that there are uh, different beliefs that lead people to commit crimes and acts of violence, different beliefs. And they specifically named within the terrorism, uh, within the domestic context, they name abortion, animal rights, environmental, white supremacy, militia, anarchists, and sovereign citizen extremists. Um, so there they're naming, here's, here's who you need to be afraid of, here's the ideologies that are going to lead you into violence. Um, and and it's, it's, it's notable that these same um, cohorts of people are often will show up in DHS fusion center terrorist threat assessments. So our government has a particular fear of, of animal rights activists, environmentalists, anarchists, um, and militias, uh, and sovereign citizen movements. Um, so I, I encourage you to check out this website. It's called, Don't, just, you can just Google, Don't Be a Puppet. And um, There's a video game, too. There is a video game it's where awful, you will but... steer a goat away from. But it, <laughs> what's, what, what, you'll, what you'll notice immediately is how... Um, I don't know, elementary, how, how it, I, I don't know a better word than stupid. Um. Well, I can just, from my own personal experience on this website, uh, I know that when I look at the factors uh, that, that you should be on the lookout for, uh, I, think, I think there are eight or nine factors, and I think either seven or eight of those certainly would have applied to me in high school uh, and still apply to me now, actually. And I think, Patrick, I think we looked at the site together and went down the list. And it wasn't really until you got to um, supports violent extremism that we really deviated from, from the kind of things we should be looking for. Right. It's, and so, the, so that's you know, amusing. It's not going to convince anybody one way or the other. So he invoked my name, and he invoked this. <laughs> and he called you a terrorist. <laughs> so I just, I just felt, again, I want to invoke kind of moderator's uh, or co-moderator's privilege here. How many of you are familiar with comedian Jeff Foxworthy? Okay, a, a lot of hands going up. You know, he's got that routine, and I'm from southwest Missouri, okay, so <laughs> not shockingly, you know, he's one of my favorite comedians. He's got this routine, been around for a long, long time, right? You might be a redneck if, mm -hmm. okay? The Don't Be a Puppet website, essentially, is the FBI's version of, you might be a terrorist if. And Adam and, and Sue are kind of briefly alluding, you know, to some of these criteria. Um, you might be a terrorist if you're taking pictures of government buildings, how many tourists come to Washington and take pictures of the African American Museum, the Washington Monument, the Capitol, et cetera, et cetera? You might be a terrorist if you do that. 
Uh, if you are um, a person who has a lot of encrypted chat apps on your phone, you might be a terrorist. You also might be a cryptography student in Matt Green's course, Professor Matt Green's course at Johns Hopkins University. Or you might be a privacy and civil liberties analyst like somebody I know uh, who has a whole ton of those apps uh, on his phone in order to figure out which one of them actually works, which one of them actually protects my communications. Um, you might be a terrorist if you're thinking about traveling to, not kidding, suspicious sounding places. <laughs> like Missouri? Not, not like Missouri, <laughs> you know, like Springfield, Bass Pro. If you're going to Bass Pro, you have to be a terrorist. Uh, this, I just wanted to jump in real quick to, to give those very specific examples. Like Adam, I, I meet at least six and maybe eight of the alleged criteria on this particular, uh, this particular website. And this is something I will tell you that uh, a number of us in the privacy and civil liberties community really had to work very hard uh, to try to prevent the FBI from trying to essentially get a legislative mandate that, that children and educators would actually have to view this kind of stuff. They were really trying to go in that direction. So anyway, I'm sorry, couldn't resist. Turn it back <laughs> over to you. That's what happens when you become a puppet. You yeah. So, so, so this website is amusing because it's, you know, no, it, it's, it's not, um, it's not attractive to middle school or high schoolers. I don't think a lot of kids are going to be visiting this website and learning from it and being impressed from it. Um, but it, do, it is helpful because it lays out for you these, quote, indicators that are so clearly problematic and, as Faiza said, not true. They're just not true. Um, but what happens is in the CVE context, and I'll speak from personal experience in Montgomery County, um, and then also talk a little bit about what I know is happening in Los Angeles and in Boston, um, the problem is that CVE practitioners have as, as part of their toolbox community education. And so they're going out into the community to teach people about these indicators, saying, hey, You'd be on the lookout for young people in your sphere, in your neighborhood, in your classroom. Um, and if they are exhibiting these signs that, that Pat laid out, um, one, one um, kind of concise uh, phraseology that I saw is, if, if, you, if you see youth who are looking for identity, meaning, belonging, or excitement, <laughs> Well, they can find that by joining ISIS, so watch out for that. You know, never mind, they could find that by joining <laughs> any other legitimate organization. Um, so White supremacists. Ex exactly. I mean, a, a legitimate or illegitimate, I mean, it's a human thing to search for identity, meaning, belonging, and excitement, right? Um, it, and so... Um, so, so what I think is important just to, to understand is, um, is that, that CVE practitioners are educating community members to look for these signs. And even if they are not doing it in a specifically Muslim context, when the average American thinks terrorist, they are not thinking white supremacists, they're not thinking animal rights activists, they're thinking Muslims. So the whole thing becomes very um, stigmatizing to the Muslim community. Um, and it also, frankly, 
sets out a very false hope that you're going to be able to stop any kind of terrorism or any kind of violent attack by looking for kids in your neighborhood who are, um, in addition to seeking identity, meaning, belonging, and excitement, um, frequently attending a mosque or a prayer group, tra wearing traditional Muslim attire, growing facial hair, um, increased activity in pro-Muslim social groups or political causes, outrage over US or Western foreign policy. These are all indicators. Um, and they try to dress them up in fancy kind of social science terms. There are push factors and pull factors. There are interactive risk factors. And it's uh, they, they have all these terms that, that I don't even know as if they have some thought and empirical evidence behind them, but they don't. Um, so, so at the community level, there's community education. There are also these community programs that FISA spoke about that are, uh, you know, that are great things. You know, after-school programs, mentorships, um, and the problem is that they are turning these. Um, empirically good programs into national security tools and aiming them at certain populations. Um, and also, often and usually, uh, training the leaders of those programs in these risk factors so that they can identify um, troubled kids to alert the authorities. Um, so in addition to community education programs and just community um, I don't know, resilience programs. There are also intervention teams. Um, and these are a team of social service providers, um, sometimes educators, psychologists, who are, who are brought in to intervene in, um, in a troubled person's life. Um, this person may or may not actually really be troubled. And I would call these intervention teams, sometimes they might be good and meaningful and helpful to an individual, but oftentimes they're reprogramming, right? They're saying, okay, your version of Islam is wrong, and we're going to teach you the correct version of Islam. And this is what's happening in Montgomery County, Maryland. Um, so so it's, it's actually a little tricky to talk about what's happening in different communities because they keep keeps being rebranded. Um, in Boston, um, it's no longer a CVE program. It's called Peace, Promoting Engagement, Acceptance, and Community Empowerment Project. In Maryland, it used to be the Montgomery County model, but now it's Brave, Building Resilience Against Violent Extremism. In LA, it's Renew, Recognizing Extremist Network Early Warnings. Um, in Minneapolis, they just call it Building Community Resilience. Um, At least they're creative. Yeah, yeah. They We've got, you know, <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. It's like they live inside the beltway and have, um, anyway, let me quickly tell you about what's the, the Los Angeles Renew project. Um, this is actually kind of modeled on what Pat was talking about, the, um, the shared responsibility committees. It brings together law enforcement and really frightening, so the LAPD, um, which isn't quite maybe as bad as the New York Police Department, but it's still the LAPD. Um, it brings together the LAPD with the FBI, particularly the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force in Los Angeles, as well as social service providers in this whole wraparound program. The idea is they're going to intervene in troubled youth um, lives. But what, what happens is, um, and here's, here's the difference between what Dr. Um, Ellis was talking about and her program and a CVE program. So the law enforcement component is controlling and very heavy. And 
in Los Angeles, if, if, a, so if a teacher says, hey, this kid seems to be heading down the wrong path, the, the um, Joint Terrorism Task Force steps in, the, the local fusion center steps in, and will do a subject workup and provide comprehensive in, information on the subject, including social media analysis, any criminal records, probation warrants, weapons, travel, financial, and any other information that may be relevant. And we know that the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force has access to vast amounts of personal information about an individual. So, so this mixes up a toxic brew of way too much information about one individual who hasn't done anything wrong, who hasn't committed any crime or even appeared to be planning for any crime, but just some teacher said, oh, he was grumpy or something. He, he started wearing traditional Muslim garb, so I'm worried about him. Um, so, and, and so what happens in Los Angeles, the security forces work hand in hand with social service and mental health providers. Um, I'm really troubled by what Alice mentioned about how you need to give information. If you're a, if you're a um, psychologist, you need to give information to the FBI. I had not heard that before. That really scares, scares me. Um, yeah. Um, and so we don't know how much information is getting is being exchanged with law enforcement from social service providers um, in Los Angeles. Um, and now that Ayan is here, I'm yeah, going to stop talking. Thank you very much. All right. <laughs> I'm going to uh, warm up back. Our next speaker will be uh, Dr. Khan. You're welcome to use the podium if you want. It's there for you. I usually is this on? I usually like to stand for what I believe in. <laughs> uh, thank you, Adam, for hosting this. I want to thank Cato for organizing this event. Before I make my remarks, I have to convey a message from the Lone Wolf Association of North America. They are very upset that we are using their name to talk about white terrorists. <laughs> and they are especially upset because we are using their name to talk about stupid white terrorists. Uh, if Mr. Paddock had waited three more weeks, then our wonderful Congress would have sanctioned the use of silencers. And then he could have shot and killed hundreds of people more before he could have been detected, because he could have had legally bought dozens of silencers for his 42 guns and then shot from the window. It would have taken a long time for people to identify where the shots were coming. So the lone wolves say that the use of the word lone wolf for these white terrorists is inappropriate because they have the entire Congress backing them, making sure that their weapons are available to them whenever they want, wherever they want, in whatever degree of intensity. So the idea that these are lone wolves is quite, quite contrary to the fact. They are not only protected by law enforcement, but lobbies, but also by a culture where people, very prominent people, are not afraid to say that this is the price of freedom and we should get used to it. Having said that, let me touch upon something that hasn't been touched upon today, which is the, the shadow of the Trump administration on CVE programs. I'm going to be very brunt about the Trump administration. I think it is guided more by prejudice than prudence, period. If there's anything that you can say that's guided more by prejudice than prudence, especially when it comes to Muslims. 
I mean, they are the poster child of Islamophobia. If you remember the eagerness with which Mr. Trump was labeling attacks in the Philippines as Islamic radical terrorism, and his reluctance to condemn white supremacist acts in this country clearly shows that he is guided by prejudice against Muslims. His attacks on Muslims, uh, his refusal to condemn attacks on Muslims like the terrorist act in Canada, which killed dozens of nearly a dozen people at a mosque, he never tweeted about it. The way he treated the shooting in Orlando differently from the way he treated the shooting in Vegas. He was immediately thrilled that the Orlando shooting happened because it proved the fact that he was right about Islamic radical terrorism. Uh, now he talks about maintaining silence for some period of time before we politicize the issue. And of course, this persistence with the U in trying to somehow get a Muslim ban, it has no strategic value. What it does do is sustains a sense of animosity and fear of Muslims. Muslim refugees coming to this country. No Muslim refugee has created in the last 1,000 years as many deaths as uh, one person did just this week in Las Vegas. So this whole idea is that under this administration, where there is so much palpable animosity towards Muslims, both at home and overseas, how can any partnership between community and law enforcement be fruitful? There have been partnerships between communities long before this CVE idea was floated. More than five, six years ago, I remember I was traveling abroad and the mosque, my mosque had elections and, and I kept looking at the face on the web page to see who won the elections at the mosque. I couldn't. Then I called the FBI and they told me who won. <laughs> you know? So we have these great partnerships, like you know, they exactly know. And uh, we have all these jokes. Uh, the FBI agent is constantly at every event in the mosque. Uh, we joke that he's come to change the batteries on the hidden cameras and the hidden <laughs> microphones in all the places. But it also benefits. For example, after the, the horrible race tableau in Charlottesville, only our mosque in Delaware was prepared to very quickly put together a panel that involved the FBI and all the law enforcement agencies because we have them on speed dial. Literally, I kid you not, it's on, on, on the internet. You can see the video and all these police officers came to the mosque and people from different races and communities, lots of minorities came to the mosque and the law enforcement assured that, that uh, Delaware was safe and that we would take care of them. Uh, and that was because of a long existing partnership but unfortunately, sometimes uh, the, the experiences of communities clearly vary from region to region. My experience has been very positive in the last 15 years. We have had two or three extremely uh, problematic cases. One member from the community joined uh, Al-Qaeda in Saudi Arabia, in Yemen, and uh, there was another one who wanted to join. And so there have been interactions with the FBI, but they have been more or less very positive. And we have found the FBI was not true to the stereotype that Muslims have about FBI. But that doesn't mean that uh, other communities have had other kinds of experiences. And then occasionally, FBI, whenever they sense that Muslims are beginning to develop a trust in them, then they will go and recruit some really horrible Islamophobe to come and train them so that the trust that was building would then be undermined. Having said all of that, I think that the CVE program that President Obama, with all his good intentions, floated out there was deeply flawed. It was basically an attempt to recruit Muslims to keep an eye on other Muslims. That's what CVE is all about. 
the government recruiting Muslims to keep an eye on other Muslims, to police their own communities. But they wanted to look as if it's not just Muslims who were targeting, but that's exactly what they did. So they came up with these broad terms, CVE, etc. I would have been happier if they had just said Muslim Watch. Created a department of Muslim Watch out there, we know, then we don't have to expect. And we say, look, man, they are killing thousands, and you don't look at other communities. Do you know that there have been less than 200 deaths as a result of uh, Islamic radical terrorism since 9-11 in the United States? Uh, the probability that you will kill yourself is higher than the probability that you would be killed by some Islamic terrorists in the United States. That means the percentage of suicides is much more higher than people who are killed by Islamic terrorists in the United States. So in spite of all of this data, uh, there is this, this, this culture of fear that is being generated. And CVE, in, rather than developing trust with Muslim communities, actually went further to create an element of distrust because of the manner in which some of the, uh, the projects were executed. But does that mean that there is no need for community police partnership? I still believe that there is. I still believe that there is, it is very important. We have benefited in many ways. One of the biggest issues now in Delaware is not the fact that uh, we are the threat, but we are the threatened. There is a lot of chatter that intelligence discovers that Muslims might be targets of, of violence by people who are becoming profoundly Islamophobic in this country and having access. So the last two prayers, we had police protecting the open air prayers of Muslims in, in the mosques. We have uh, regular police officers patrolling the neighborhoods of uh, Muslims, I have been targeted. My house has been attacked on a couple of occasions. People have thrown stuff at me. So, so in that sense, having access and partnership with the police is reassuring to the community. But having said all of that, I think that as, as the critics of, of CVE repeatedly point out, that, that we need to look at it in a larger context. And the larger context is that, that the amount of attention that is being paid paid to the so-called threat of Muslims in the United States does not warrant the kind of resources that are being thrown uh, to combat that. I mean, the whole fiasco of the New York Police Department, they were, they were monitoring Muslim student associations in Philadelphia, so far away, way outside the territory. So, so that has contributed more to the rise of Islamophobia. And I think that under this administration, if the animosity towards Muslims and distrust towards Muslims becomes so common to the official rhetoric, then not only will it contribute to heightening of Islamophobia, but I'm afraid that it may become a source of radicalization. So the presidential tweets, both acts of commission and acts of omission, may engender anger uh, among Muslims. If you notice, the general level of anger in the country is risen. And if you watch the social media, you will notice that liberals are all very upset and very angry and talking in extremely high decibels about uh, the, the Trump administration and its policies. And Muslims have joined the bandwagon. And I'm afraid that the general rising level of radicalism in the country's politics may contribute to further incidences 
among Muslim community. And that is why, to me, a CVE program can be beneficial if executed with the purpose of protecting the community rather than just watching the Muslim community. So that is one aspect that I think we, we need to focus on. And finally, uh, there is an external dimension to this. And I'm not just talking about US foreign policy in the Muslim world, but but the violence perpetrated by ISIS in Europe, for example, it resonates in the United States. So if there are 100 people killed in France in a major terrorist attack, it legitimizes a lot of suspicions and fears in this country, and politicians increasingly feel free to air them in, in a language which essentially treats the entire Muslim community as guilty. As far as Muslims are concerned in the United States, they are now broadly assumed to be guilty until proven innocent. And when they are innocent, it is only this time. OK, this time you were innocent. That's, that seems to be the kind of attitude towards the community, especially from law enforcement agencies. One final thing, the attention that CVE program has received is quite inordinate compared to lots of other things that the government is doing in terms of counterterrorism. Even though the budget of CV is, at least for DHS, is what, less than $20 million. Uh, what it has done is it has, at least within the Muslim community, it has created tremendous awareness to the language that the government uses. So now what happens is when you have new police officers or new uh, government agents who begin to interact, they moment they use terminology which sounds like CVE, it breaks communication within the community and law enforcement. I, I wish there was a moment where we wouldn't need to have interaction. My children know all our politicians in our state. They know all the police officers. They also know law enforcement. And I have other colleagues at the universities whose children have never met these politicians, have never met. So it's not just the law enforcement people who are engaged in this so-called CVE. It's interfaith leaders uh, of other religions. It is politicians who regularly visit the mosque. It's as if America is visiting Muslims all the time. It's a good thing, but, but the shadow that well, you know, we are so wonderful. We are protecting you from our president. We are so wonderful that even though you might be dangerous, we are still reaching out to you. All these subtle overtones of the discourse are extremely disturbing. And finally, one comment that I would like to make is that the model that is used to anticipate radicalization clearly implicates the religion of Islam. And that is, as long as you think that that somebody is going to become a terrorist because that person is Muslim, I think that models will fail. There are lots and lots of Muslims who are not triggered towards radicalization by all the political events. You have to find a different kind of correlation between geopolitics and radicalization. And those models do exist, but the law enforcement is not willing to buy those models or look at other models of the linkages between geopolitics and radicalization, because then that then you will have to accept the assumption that there might be some connection between radicalization and Western countries' foreign policies in the Muslim world. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Khan. Ayan, you're, uh, you're welcome to sit there or, or use the podium. I'll sit here. Nyan is from Minneapolis, so we had a reference in the first panel to the CVE program that's operating in Minneapolis. So I look forward to hearing your thoughts about this. Yeah, um, 
So I don't have to push this, I don't think. You're good. Okay. Uh, hi, everyone. Assalamu alaikum. Um, I am from Minneapolis, and I am from the Somali community in Minneapolis. Um, the Somali community uh, has the in the Somali community in Minneapolis has the is, has the largest diaspora um, outside of Somalia. Um, so it's about like a hundred thousand. And in the last um, few years, we've been introduced to CBE, and the effects of this program have been really debilitating on my community. The first problem that we've seen is, of course, division. Uh, this is a group of refugees, um, mostly low-income, uh, people that are learning the language and getting acclimated to um, life in America. And so community means, it, you know, it's very important to us that we're looking out for each other, that we're caring for each other. Um, and so to have this, our community being torn apart by this program, um, it really takes away some of the only things that we really have. Uh, we've seen an increase in informants. Um, we've seen informants in our local masjids, uh, people at coffee shops. Um, and so what it does is before when you had a culture of people who were willing to speak to one another, acknowledge one another, um, care for one another, it makes people paranoid about who is potentially watching you on behalf of the state. And so what it does is it makes people not want to have conversations. It makes people not want to reach out to other people in their community. And what it does is it isolates an already isolated community. Uh, we've also seen a division in the nonprofit sector because in our city, the way CVE works is nonprofits receive um, grants from the government. And so the basis of those grants is that they prevent radicalization. And these are organizations that work around uh, mental health issues, that work around mediation, restorative justice, um, after school mentoring, all of these programs that our communities desperately need uh, because our community has been ignored for a very, very long time uh, in our city, even though, of course, we've been there uh, for some time. But until this topic of radicalization came up, we were pretty much neglected. And now you see tons of sources of money coming in when we needed those after-school programs before, we needed those healthcare services before, we needed mediation and all those things, but the attention is now all of a sudden on us. And of course, those services don't come uh, alone. They come with the caveat of surveillance and entrapment and division. And so we've also seen this reflected in our media um, if you were to, you know, write in, type in Muslim or Somali um, on our, at our local, you know, newspaper website or NPR or whatever, 90% of those searches are related to radicalization or terrorism. And so it creates this, uh, this image of Muslims and it, and it connects our religious identity to extremism. And it makes it easier for the larger public to accept this notion that we are inherently violent and in desperate need of rehabilitation when that is so clearly not the case. Um, and, it's, and it's also caused a, you know, an increased FBI presence. So in Minneapolis, there is the Cedar Riverside community. 
and it is predominantly Somali. Um, there is a local elementary school, there is uh, a community center, and at, at our community center, we have um, an, a woman who openly identifies as an FBI agent, and her job is to essentially um, interact with the children who come in to play basketball or do other after-school activities. You don't see that in any other community. Um, why, are, why do eight-year-olds need to have interaction with law enforcement apparatuses? What you're telling those children is, is that they're inherently uh, violent and that they have this future of being criminal and they need to be monitored at a young age to prevent that radicalization. Because um, you don't see that in any other school, you don't see that in any other community center and there are lots in our city. Uh, and you also have uh, FBI agents and uh, DHS and other um, organization holding like roundtables and in discussions with the community um, about radicalization and oftentimes presenting straight up lies. You know, at one point we had a know your rights training um, at our in our community and there was an FBI agent um, and he went up there and he talked about how if a, a, an officer or somebody else approaches you and they want to talk to you or um, or they want to come inside your home and talk to you, you should let them in because you have nothing to hide. You know, and somebody else had to go up there and immediately correct that and they were mad that members of the community were going up and saying, hey, no, you have rights, you don't have to talk to them, you can, you, you should call your lawyer instead. Um, but instead what's happening is, is mis, mis, misinformation is being presented as true and it's being accepted because of who it's coming from. Um, yeah, and so we also have, like I said, with our media, we had a series of op-eds coming out every single month um, in support of this program, uh, pushing legislators to, um, to create bills, uh, highlighting organizations that have uh, taken these funds and really creating the stigma around uh, Somalis and Muslims and creating this environment where the only time you are talking about your Muslim or Somali neighbors is when you're talking about terrorism and radicalization. And so what does that do to the psyche of the rest of the community? Uh, and this is something we've seen, uh, increased violence against Muslims. Um, last year we had a shooting during Ramadan, our holy month, where um, a few Muslim boys were dressed in Muslim attire and they were going to the local masjid to pray their night, the nightly prayers and they were stopped by um, a white man and he was, he shouted racial slurs and, and, and other types of slurs and he shot at them. Um, we also had uh, our local masjid firebombed about a month ago and it's still an open investigation. Um, we've had, you know, cases of increased bullying in schools. The other month I was um, at a local school and uh, these young girls were confiding in me that they were being called nigger terrorists um, by their classmates and the school was not doing anything about this. And, and of course we've heard about, you know, Muslims being, uh, 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 what's the word I'm thinking of? Muslims being monitored and, uh, I think I'm thinking of a word, but surveilled. surveilled yeah, but it'll come to me. Um, but basically, ah, uh, uh, what is the word? <laughs> when you're at an airport, and because you're Muslim, profile 
Thank you, thank you. Um, yes. Every, see, and that should be the top of my head. But um, yeah, being profiled, of course. Uh, surveillance in our local messages. And what that also does is it, it creates an environment where people are not allowed to talk. So for example, if there was a young person and they were you know, thinking things about ISIS or whatever, and they, were, they had questions, and they were to talk about this at the masjid, most masjids now have this zero tolerance policy. So if you're talking about it, you're out. What does that do? And, and it's to protect them, because if, if people are talking about it and they don't do anything, who is going to come into the masjid to do something about it? The FBI, law enforcement. And so what happens is, is you're pushing where, where you could have facilitated a conversation about why certain things are wrong, or you could have prevented you know, something from happening or, or you know, a person being led down a route. What you're doing is you're leading them to their own um, devices. And so you're creating, you're creating an environment people can't talk, and then they have to go to the internet or they go somewhere else for this information. And this is all because of this culture of fear and paranoia that this program has created. Um, and then of course people bring up the fact that, well, it's not just Muslims being uh, targeted, it's also, you know, um, not just being targeted, but it's also, uh, you know, white supremacists, right? But the, the fact is, is that white supremacists are not being, uh, you know, they're not, the focus of the CVE program is Muslims. It's not white supremacists. And we see that under Trump, where he cut out funding for the organizations that um, deal with white supremacists. Uh, but we're not asking for equal opportunity surveillance and entrapment. And I also think that it's very dangerous to equate the entire Muslim population with actual members of the KKK or, or publicly, you know, publicly, um, people who are publicly white supremacists. Those are two different things, right? Um, and so, yeah, we're not asking for something, we're not asking for equal opportunity uh, surveillance, we're asking that we don't be surveilled at all. And so I think the number one question that I get is, so what is your solution then? If, if we don't have CV, what do we have? Uh, my solution, well, the first thing you have to look at is the effectiveness of the program. I could say right now that unicorns are preventing terrorism, and I would have the same amount of evidence as the CVE program for preventing terrorism. <laughs> there is no evidence. Um, and so why do we keep something that isn't actually doing its job? Is it to make us feel safe about protecting us against the Muslim boogeyman in the room? Um, what is its purpose? If it's just, if it's a drain, if there's no actual effectiveness, what is, what is the purpose of this program? I don't, think the, I don't think this program, it's not just flawed, it's fundamentally wrong. And so my solution to it is scrapping it all together and coming up with something based on sound science and measures that actually work instead of wasting our money on making us feel better and attacking the Muslim community. Um, yeah, so that's all I have to say. Thank you very much. Um, so we're, we're running a little late on time, so I have so many questions, but uh, I work here, so I can ask them later. Uh, we'll, we'll go to the audience, and uh, just a reminder that uh, you should ask your question in the form of a question. Uh, diatribes can be sent to Patrick Eddington after, after we're done. Uh, and please wait for the microphone and identify yourself, if you want to, uh, when you get it. Any questions? we don't have questions, then I get to ask mine. Sir, right, right there in the, yep. 
Uh, thank you, Warren Coates. I'm going to cheat a little bit and just r raise a, a comment. Uh, many of us have just been watching the Vietnam War series, and it really brings out a lot of very interesting things. But one interesting thing it brought out, brings out, is the extent to which every young person on the face of the earth is searching for purpose, identity, et cetera. Somebody mentioned that. And look what it led so many young Americans to do. So I think a key is what are the answers that we provide as a community, as a society, to how best to fulfill that natural urge to have, have purpose and meaning, et cetera. Any responses? You're welcome. We, we did an interesting thing in Delaware. What we did is got heavily involved in the elections and got our young people heavily involved. We had kids who couldn't vote writing op-eds in newspapers. We did fundraising and so got the community totally involved. Uh, and what was also interesting is that we held a congressional debate in the mosque and it turned out to be the best debate in the whole state uh, because it touched on foreign policy also, especially in the Middle East. So it gave opportunity for the youth to vent sometimes about US policies. It gave them an opportunity to tell the politicians what they thought about various things. But most importantly, it made them feel as if they belonged to this country. And that was the biggest thing. They felt suddenly that they were stakeholders in America and that they were not necessarily Pakistanis in America or Egyptians in America. They were Americans too. And the attention that they got from uh, senior politicians and, and issues made them feel at home. And I think that everybody is looking for an identity. And if uh, American Muslims uh, engage in mainstream issues, and you can see that, that more and more young and uh, not so young American Muslims are getting involved in social justice issues, Black Lives Matter programs, and other programs. And I think that is where they will find their identities, their purposes, and their meanings in life. Uh, so I will invoke my moderator privilege, because when, so when Ayan mentioned the FBI, this is for Dr. Khan, uh, when Ayan mentioned uh, the FBI agent uh, at, the, at the youth group, you know, t and talking to people and saying, hey, uh, if the FBI comes by your house, you should let them in, you should, I mean, as a lawyer and as a libertarian, I had a physical reaction when those words <laughs> came out of her mouth. Uh, so I'm just, you, you know, you talked about your experience with, with the FBI and the kind of this ambivalent, joking kind of relationship. But I, so my question is, given the history of the FBI, its history during women's suffrage, its history with the civil rights movement, uh, up to and including trying to get Martin Luther King to kill himself, uh, what is it, if anything, why do you still seem optimistic uh, that, there, that this is an institution that could be worthy of trust? You seem to think there's still something here that's worth, worth pursuing, and I'm curious why, why you think that. Well. We have a saying in the town that I come from, in Hyderabad, that if the knife falls on the watermelon, and if the watermelon falls on the knife, it is the watermelon that is going to get cut. So whether we play ball with the FBI or we don't, we are on the receiving end either way. So following Sun Tzu, we keep our friends close and our enemies closer. Uh, but what is also interesting is that by providing the FBI 
access to the community from the front door, we don't have to worry about the back door. And so they come in, and they, they want to know whatever we want to know. Uh, there is nothing. See, the community is pretty safe. That's why it's all working fine, right? We don't have shady characters preaching shady stuff. Nobody's getting recruited and going and fighting in Somalia or Afghanistan or anything. So basically, Delaware is a dead posting. <laughs> if you're posted there as a joint terrorism task force leader, your career is over. Uh, because, uh, so we kind of feel sorry for them also. <laughs> so, but. Other places like Los Angeles and New York, it's a different ball game, I think. So that's why I think the experiences are very different. Uh, but, uh, but it's not about prevention. I don't think they can prevent anything, okay? Mm -hmm. Even the parents can't prevent anything. And some of the terrorists are not, the, the, the gestation period to radicalization can vary, you know? like. Uh, I, uh, in Iraq, for example, somebody would be standing in, in the line all day long to, at the green zone trying to become a, a translator for the U.S. Then they go home and find that the U.S. bombed their home. So next day they are standing in line to join Al-Qaeda, not the U.S. So, so suddenly this person has been radicalized overnight because of some drastic event. So, so they, that, there's no way you can predict uh, radicalization like that. Uh, and I don't know whether you're following this, but uh, people say that now, within six months of first coming in contact with ISIS, people have actually left the United States and Europe and joined ISIS in the process also converting to Islam. So it's pretty fast. There's no way they can you know, do the, the, the Trump Cruise movie of predicting crime, et cetera. That's not going to happen. But what I do feel is that access to law enforcement is, is a source of protection to, to the mosques and Muslim community leaders and their institutions, as long as it is combined with, with partnerships with interfaith leaders and close relationship with elected officials uh, in the state. And so this total engagement with mainstream America, I think, is the best way in which we can protect ourselves from being marginalized, demonized, and then harassed by the law enforcement people. So that's a very... It's a very sad, really, position for a community to be in, though, right? Because if, if you do see yourself as, as the watermelon, to use your, your metaphor, and you're, like, to, to have to choose between do we want to be cut by the FBI because we're cooperating or because we're not cooperating, <coughs> um, the fact that there are communities in our country that are even in that position, um, I think, speaks, to, speaks to, to the problem here. Can I also say yes, something to this point? Um, you know, that's, it's definitely a question that has come up in our community of nonprofits, you know, people who are doing really important work but don't have the funding. Their thinking is, is you know, what I want to do is I want to help these kids. Does it matter where that money is coming from? Does it matter what the purpose of this funding is? If at the end of the, if at the, end of the day I'm helping these kids. But the, but the answer is, is that it absolutely does. Um, the FBI is probably going to do whatever it wants to do, no matter if we cooperate or not. But our response is definitely going to impact the work that they're able to do, right? So, for example, um, when you know, we, we if they have the ability to come in and say, "We're working with this community, and we have." so-and-so who's going to help us. We have so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, and these people are signing off on it. It's going to be very easy for them to spin this as a grassroots push 
and for them to say that this is something that the community wants. The community wants to be surveilled. They want to be monitored. They want this type of entrapment. Um, and when that is, you know, obviously not the case, but it's easier for them to spin. Uh, that's why in our city we've had a task force that was made just for, uh, just for this program. Um, we've had countless roundtables with the DOJ um, and DHS uh, where they're coming to our community and saying, how can we help fix you? You know, and so it's already coming from a very problematic lens. Uh, we've had so much inter interaction with, you know, law enforcement. Uh, and despite all this, there are still FBI agents going to people's homes and saying, you know, knocking on the door and asking to be let in um, without, you know, any type of warrant or any reason to be there. We have uh, people's homes who, we have FBI vans that are sitting outside of people's homes monitoring them. We've had uh, countless youth and people being harassed by uh, law enforcement in our city. And so regardless of if we help them attack our community, they're still going to do what they're going to do. Um, and there are people who have cooperated and our community is still feeling the blowback. And I think what's also important to understand here is you know, no matter how hard we work toward you know, mainstream issues, we will never assimilate into white America. You know, Muslims, uh, you know, specifically in our community, we're black Muslims. We have an understanding of the, the I can't even say relationship between, you know, police officers and, and, um, and black people in this country because that's not a relationship. That's one group um, oppressing another. That's one group putting force on another. And, and so, we're not trying to, um, we're, this, isn't, this isn't something where we're trying to, you know, come to equal terms on. We don't have equal power. You know what I'm saying? We don't have the same footing as people who have an entire state, who have all of these criminal justice apparatuses that can come after us at any point. And so we don't trust the FBI, and we have good reason to. You know, and I think the average American shouldn't either. Um, and, and it would be naive to think that they're coming in with good intentions and that if we cooperate that we will somehow be spared um, uh, the consequences of their actions. That's not the case. I think the best thing to do is to inform uh, the community, make sure that we're educated on our rights and um, as Americans and to organize, uh, to have you know, grassroots movements around, of course, Black Lives Matter, um, around creating safe communities and thinking about um, thinking about a world where, you know, imagining a world where we're not constantly surveilled and and uh, and entrapped. I think that's a, probably a better way to look at it, in my opinion. If we had a measure of how much of, let's say, this much civil rights are available to Americans, and then we had a barometer to measure how much of that is available to other minorities. Right, to measure relative access of this public good called freedom and civil rights, et cetera, then I'm not sure that the Muslims are at the bottom of the rung, but they are pretty much on the lower side of it. And I think at some point we have to understand that if Muslims don't enjoy all the civil rights that are available to, to the most privileged people in this country, then America is a diminished democracy. So what happens to the civil rights of Muslims is a measure of what is happening to America's democracy. And as long as that sentiment is not there in the majority community's thought process, if they keep thinking of their rights versus our security, 
then I think that minority communities will be exploited on the issue of human rights. And that is the message that I think the new generation of American Muslims, by engaging in social justice issues, which does not affect their community but other communities, uh, will hopefully be able to send also by also engaging in mainstream politics. Thank you. I'm happy for that to be the last word. So thank you so much and thank our panelists.